Section 23 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12, The Captured Council, Part 1. When every nation in Christendom had refused to help Gregory with their armies, when three princes had rejected the offer of the imperial crown, and France and Germany had betrayed a lively resentment at his efforts to raise up a rival to Frederick, when the emperor had made himself almost supreme in central Italy, had threatened Gregory at the very gates of Rome, and was now slowly bringing the stubborn resistance of Faenza to an end, then Gregory bethought himself of another means to work the downfall of his enemy. The king of France, when rebuking him for offering the crown of the empire to his brother Robert, had said, No power can depose the emperor but a general council. Frederick himself had appealed to a similar tribunal against the sentence of excommunication. A general council had confirmed the deposition of the emperor Otto by Innocent III in 1215 and the elevation of Frederick in Otto's stead. Now, in response to Frederick's appeal in conformity with the precedent of twenty-five years ago, another general council should be summoned, and Gregory would appear at the head of the Christian hierarchy to judge the monarch who had defied the sentence of the church. Gregory, therefore, sent a circular letter around Christendom bidding the kings to send their envoys and the prelates to repair in person to Rome in the Easter of 1241 to settle the arduous business of the church. Frederick, however, had no mind for such a council as this. He had appealed to an assembly which should be convoked by some independent arbiter, such as the pious Louis of France, before which Pope and Emperor should appear as rival but equal litigants, each to lay his case before the representatives of Christendom and to submit to their decision. From such a council he could hope for justice, and it was justice that he asked. But before this council of Gregory's summoning, he would appear as a criminal, his guilt already decided upon even if the measure of his punishment was not yet ordained. His chief judge would be the Pope, who from his august position as head of the church would sway the opinions of the ecclesiastics either by reverence or fear, they by virtue of their vows being bound to obey his commands. Nor was this the only reason which gave Frederick good cause for refusing to submit to such a tribunal. Gregory had summoned the emperor's temporal enemies to the council, such men as the Doge of Venice, the Count of Provence, the Marquess of Este, Alberic de Romano, Paul Traversaro, and the Milanese, men who were actually in rebellion against him, and of whom many were in the pay of Gregory. There were others, too, whose impartiality Frederick had good cause to doubt. Cardinal Otto, the legate in England, he said, and the King of England, aspiring to debase me, have drained that country of almost all its money, and have also caused an anathema to be pronounced against us in that kingdom, to the great shame of the empire and the disparagement of our honour. Wherefore we ought with good reason to consider them and all the prelates of England as our enemies, inasmuch as they have poured forth their money to our injury, and have stifled our honour to the utmost of their power, and they are not influenced by the circumstance of my being allied by the ties of kindred to the English king, and that I have never injured them, 
it would be absurd and entirely discordant with reason for me to undergo a trial by them. He was perfectly ready, he declared to the King of France, to make peace if Gregory would abandon the heretical Milanese. We hate heresy, but the Pope is cherishing Milan a nest of heresy and a sink of all vices. No wonder that we forbid the assembly of such a council, since it is convoked to work our ruin. The Pope rejected the mediation of your serenity and forbade our calling a council to prove our innocence. We shall assuredly not allow it to be summoned in order that our name and race may be destroyed by him. We shall never stoop to lay our worldly affairs before a ghostly assembly convoked by our worst enemy. We beg your royal highness to make known to your prelates our firm resolve to refuse them a safe conduct. The emperor resolved to prevent the assembly of the council by force if warnings were not sufficient, and he acquainted all the prelates of Christendom with his decision. From Faenza he wrote to all his faithful subjects and bade them prevent the northern prelates from reaching Rome. They might seize the goods of all whom they intercepted and hold their persons captive until they heard his pleasure. He ignored the danger of arousing the active resentment of those nations whose prelates he injured. For the time being, he would assert to the full his imperial supremacy. He was the emperor of Rome, the temporal lord of Christendom, as the pope of Rome was its spiritual head. And if the prelates of Christendom should disregard his warnings and attempt to gather for his destruction, then no mere claim of nationality should save them from his wrath. Oh, what anxiety, what manifold trouble afflicted the heart's blood of the emperor in defending his empire, exclaims Matthew Paris at this point, for he had six numerous and formidable armies, one which he commanded in person at Faenza, another a double army in the Genoese territory, namely a naval force to oppose by sea the passage of the legates and prelates who despised his counsel, and another force by land near the sea-coast, which continually ravaged the crops and vineyards of the Genoese. A third army, under his son Conrad, heir to the kingdom of Jerusalem, who had collected under him an innumerable force from the whole of Germany and the adjacent provinces under the imperial dominion, he had sent against the Tartars. A fourth army he had employed in the Trevisan march. A fifth was engaged in Ancona and the valley of Spoleto, and the sixth in the Holy Land under Rafe, his marshal. Such extensive operations naturally entailed a heavy expenditure, and Frederick was constantly harassed by the need for money. At the siege of Faenza, he was even driven to issue a leather coinage, each piece of which bore the value of a golden agastul. The coins, strange to say, became very popular in central Italy, and in the following year their face value was honorably paid by the imperial treasury to whoever presented them. Genoa had been appointed by the Pope as the meeting place of the prelates of England, France, Spain, and northern Italy, and from there they were to be conveyed to Rome by the Genoese fleet. Accordingly, upon Pisa fell the task of preventing the safe arrival of the ecclesiastics at Rome. The two great maritime cities had both changed their politics since the boy of Sicily had journeyed northwards in 1212 to gain the imperial crown. Then Genoa had sent her fleet to protect him, while Pisa had endeavored to bar his passage and wrest him from the Genoese. 
Now Genoa was protecting his enemies, and Pisa was seeking to deliver them into his hands. Pisa, it must be confessed, had no liking for the duty that had been laid upon her by her lord, which would involve her in a war with Genoa, but she could not disobey the imperial commands. She endeavoured to avoid the task by sending envoys to her rival and entreating her not to convey the prelates to Rome. Genoa, however, was equally bound to obey the church and fulfil her engagements with Gregory, and the conflict was inevitable. Pisa, therefore, since she could not evade the duty, resolved to acquit herself manfully in its accomplishment. Her own fleet of forty war vessels were strengthened by the arrival of Enzo with twenty-seven galleys from the kingdom, and this formidable force lay waiting in the harbour of Pisa until news should arrive that the Genoese fleet had started for Rome. By the April of 1241, the August assembly of prelates and the Lombard envoys had gathered at Genoa. The papal legate Gregory of Romagna was more remarkable for zeal than caution, and though Genoa had only provided thirty-two galleys, he prevailed upon the clerics to embark on their perilous journey on the 1st of May. The Genoese admiral Malocello was as rash as the legate, and instead of making a wide detour in order to avoid Enzo and the Pisans, he sailed gaily down the coast and fell in with the enemy between the islands of Giglio and Monte Cristo on the 3rd of May. The result was a foregone conclusion, for the Genoese were outnumbered by two to one and were hampered by their holy but non-militant freight. At first they had a measure of success, for they captured three Pisan galleys before the main fleet arrived. They afterwards made much of this to the Pope, informed him that they had beheaded every man on board the captured vessels, and then with unconscious humour complained of the barbarity of Frederick's sailors. But the aspect of affairs soon changed, and the victory fell to the greater number. Only five galleys escaped to Genoa, with the Spanish prelates on board. Two thousand soldiers, sailors, and priests, including the Archbishop of Besançon, were killed or drowned. Four thousand were taken prisoners, and a large store of English gold fell into Enzo's hands. An imposing array of churchmen were transferred to the Pisan galleys, among them three cardinals, the papal legates from England, France, and Genoa, the archbishops of Bordeaux, Rouen, and Auch, eight bishops, six French abbots, and more than a hundred proctors who had come in the stead of the more cautious ecclesiastics. The dignitaries were treated in a manner to which they must have been little accustomed. They arrived at Pisa in a very forlorn condition, and were then put in chains by Enzo's orders and flung into prison. On their subsequent sufferings, when they were conveyed from Pisa to Naples, Matthew Paris, snug in his scriptorium at St. Albans, waxes eloquent and pitiful. They were committed to safe custody in a castle surrounded by water near the town of Naples, but they did not all feel the calamities of imprisonment in an equal degree. The condition of the Bishop of Praeneste was most wretched, although disease or excessive weakness had taken fast hold of them all, for during the voyage they sat fastened and squeezed together in heaps, and with the intolerable heat falling upon them, and flies flitting round them and stinging them like scorpions, they dragged on a long martyrdom, tortured by hunger and thirst, and exposed to insults and annoyances at the will of the wicked crew of hostile pirates, and all this they endured owing to their obedience. 
A prison, therefore, seemed to them a place of rest, although it afforded them none. They, in consequence, pined away, especially the more delicate of them, and languished under various diseases, and some of the religious men and many others breathed forth their wretched lives and departed from the miseries of this life to the Lord after gaining the palm of martyrdom. Shortly after, too, the bishop of Praeneste, obedient to the pope till death, passed from this wicked world to a place of rest. They would have done well, these religious men, to have heeded the emperor's warning. End of section 23